happy to give you a clap as well. <laughs> Epic reading. Uh, just so you know, um, that is our reading for next week as well, because uh, we're going to take two weeks to look at this um, huge chapter where there's so much happening. Um, because today we are returning to Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And we began looking at this book last year. And earlier this year, we did two sermons on chapters 5 and 6. And if you were with us back then, you may remember that those chapters, chapters 5 and 6, are united by a common catchphrase, spoken by Paul seven times. Have you not understood? Paul was required in those chapters to take the Corinthian Christians to task for some very serious bad behavior and some very bad thinking that was prevalent in that church. Well, now, uh, chapter 7 um, begins with, our text today begins with, now for the matters you wrote about. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is a letter of response. He is responding to things that are going on in Corinth. And he has two sources of information. One source of information is the Corinthian Christians who have come to visit Paul, come to pay him a visit. Paul is currently in Ephesus. And in doing so, they have brought him a letter from that church. And that is Paul's other source of information. Up until now, Paul has been responding to information gleaned from his visitors, members of the household of Chloe, Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Archias. Now he focuses on his second source, the letter itself. The subjects the Corinthian church wants him to talk about in general terms. Marriage, chapter 7. Food, sacrificed to idols, chapter 8. Spiritual gifts, chapter 12. But it is important to notice that while Paul is switching sources from uh, informants uh, to letter, he is not switching agenda. Um, he is not switching subjects. Paul sets the agenda in his letters, and he is continuing to talk about an extremely important subject, marriage and sexuality, a subject that he began talking about back in chapter 5. And that's what chapter 7 continues to be all about. However, you may have noticed uh, in uh, listening to it just then or reading along with it um, that Paul, uh, talking about marriage uh, and, and singleness, and sexuality, he makes his way through an almost bewildering array of topics. He's been asked a question about the goodness, or otherwise, of sex in marriage. And along the way, he discusses, albeit briefly, marriage and singleness, sexual immorality and celibacy, libido and sexual desire, divorce and remarriage, non-believing husbands and wives, Christian children, and only one spouse believes, circumcision and uncircumcision, slavery and emancipation, eschatology, which is the study of last things, marriage and anxiety, and whether or not to marry or give in marriage. And that's a lot of different topics. Well, Paul's style is 
conversational, not propositional. He jumps from topic to topic. And he can actually be hard to pin down precisely with respect to his meaning on any number of occasions. His teaching sometimes to depend, seems to depend upon fine distinctions and nuanced arguments. For example, at face value, Paul contradicts himself at least on one topic in this chapter, and that is slavery, encouraging slaves to remain slaves, whilst also encouraging them to seek freedom if they can. But he is obviously making a point that isn't as simple as that. Well, more on that later. Paul is indeed primarily, in this long chapter, wanting to talk about marriage. But he can only do that with respect to these Corinthian Christians by changing their thinking about many things. Indeed, in some ways, by changing their thinking about everything. How does he do that? Well, um, to figure out how Paul does that, let's look to see perhaps if there's one preoccupying thought that Paul keeps on coming back to. Yes, actually, when you look, there is an idea in this chapter that Paul keeps on coming back to, an idea that actually appears five times. Verse 17, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And this idea, that's three, is, is restated twice further. Uh, once in verses 26 and 27, and then again in verse 40, that time with particular reference to marriage and singleness, you are better off if you stay as you are. So staying in the same situation in life in which God called you is the key idea in this chapter. Or is it? Is, is this exactly the, the rule that Paul actually lays down in all the churches? For goodness sake, don't change jobs. Well, we're going to have to have a closer look. And the, the, the thing is that the word translated in the verses I've just read to you, the word translated three times as situation is actually calling. So then... Verse 20 literally is, let each one in the calling in which they were called, in this, remain. But in English, the calling in which they were called is both clumsy and confusing. So then, of the 60 different English translations I consulted on BibleGateway.com, 18 keep it literal, translating calling as calling. But 13 translate it uh, the way you were or as you were. 
a dozen translations go the route of condition. Each one must remain in the condition in which he was when he was called. Eight uh, go the route of situation, as in our NIV Pew Bible, or circumstances. Stay in those circumstances, etc., etc., down to one which translates it station in life. Or another, the work he was doing. So then, overwhelmingly, when the translators choose to not translate the word calling literally, they go for some word or phrase that they think calling means. Which for us, actually, as kind of Westerners in our thinking, that means station in life, uh, socioeconomic circumstances, job, occupation. God doesn't want you to leave your station in life. But this isn't what Paul means by calling. How do I know that? Well, because Paul tells us what he means by calling. Uh, The examples that Paul uses are circumcised, uncircumcised. In other words, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. And as is the dominating theme of the chapter, male, female. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Uh, These things are the big cultural identity markers of Paul's world. What Paul is saying is that you don't have to be a different person to serve God. And that is something that for us as Christians we routinely find actually quite a hard idea to believe. New Christians particularly routinely find it easy to believe that they cannot really serve God until they've become, culturally speaking, somebody else. Sometimes this might mean a change in job. Sometimes it might mean a change in circumstances. Sometimes it might mean a change in social identity. But always the temptation is to believe that I cannot serve God where I am, who I am. Something's got to change. One of the first questions anyone inquiring about ordination in the Anglican church is asked is this. Do you believe that you cannot serve God unless you are ordained? And if they answer in the affirmative, if they believe that they cannot serve God unless they are ordained, we know not to ordain them. But the temptation of such thinking isn't experienced only by new Christians. It's an enduring temptation. I cannot really, I cannot really start to serve God until I leave this job and get another one. One maybe in doing, doing Christian ministry. I, I cannot really serve God until I'm married. I cannot really serve God until I'm divorced. I cannot really serve God until my sp- spouse comes to faith in Jesus Christ. I cannot really serve God until I'm married to someone else. Well, Paul has just challenged the same thinking, but in first century Corinthian categories. I cannot really serve God because I'm married. I cannot really serve God because I'm married to an unbeliever. I cannot really serve God because I'm only a slave. I cannot really serve God, therefore, until I gain my freedom. I cannot really serve God because I'm, until I'm single. I cannot really serve God until I get myself circumcised and become Jewish. 
I cannot really serve God until I become uncircumcised, a Gentile. And the temptation needs to be challenged because although it's subtle, it is a delusion, and delusions harm people. And in fact, delusions harm whole communities of people if they're left unchallenged. It's precisely the, the same kind of it's precisely the kind of delusion that we'd expect in a place like Corinth because it is the delusion in one particular way. It is the delusion of super spirituality. And Corinth is a place where people are desperate to be above or superior to others, to demonstrate superior knowledge, superior spirituality, to be seen as superior. Indeed, this is a place that will go on to invent the super-toxic category of super-apostle. But it's not a problem limited to Corinth. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about which one was superior. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And Paul wrote in another of his letters, Paul wrote, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. These things are remarkable. A slave's duty might have been to clean out the stables or to dispose of the night waste. Anything at all. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And he will reward you for shoveling horse poo. There isn't superior work. There are no superior Christian callings. There is no one acceptable cultural identity. What counts is faithfulness in all humility. Christian ministry, whatever that might mean, is not superior to other forms of work. Wherever you get that belief, you get hierarchy and a diminishment of human dignity. Pastors actually, where such hierarchies exist, pastors actually do usually quite well. So it's rare for them to challenge them because they're doing quite nicely from the arrangement. Although indeed they know they're only number two on the ladder. Number one spot, of course, is held by missionaries, <laughs> ex-missionaries. We all doff the cap at them. 
But if you think that changing nappies or making dinner or canning tomatoes or fixing tires is somehow inferior to or less Christian than making sermons and preaching the gospel, repent of that now. The temptation that Paul is confronting is is a difficult one to confront because it is insidious and it's difficult to precisely catch and label. So then, to the apparent contradiction in Paul's words to slaves, that on the one hand, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Yet also in verse 21, but if you can gain your freedom, do so. That would indeed be a contradiction if we thought that Paul was talking about station in life or socioeconomic circumstances or occupation. But we now see that he is saying you don't need to be somebody else before you can start serving God. And part of that temptation that Paul is confronting is the temptation of of wanting to live an unlimited life. I can only serve God when I am no longer limited by this marriage or by my singleness or by me being a slave or by my job, etc., etc. But actually and ironically, it is when we choose the more limited life that we are often more able to serve God effectively. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they were, just to point out the blindingly obvious, in the Garden of Eden. The Garden was their domain, the place where they lived, the place where they served, the place where they worked with God, but it was limited. Now, in the garden was everything that they could conceivably need, as well as one thing that they didn't need at all, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did that tree give them if they chose to eat of the fruit? Well, it gave them the knowledge of good and evil. Is that a bad thing? Well, no, of course, knowing the difference between right and wrong is what makes an adult an adult. But eating the fruit was to gain that knowledge independently of God instantly. To put that another way, to not eat of the tree was to learn from Jesus, standing in his presence as he sat down to teach, gently, patiently, slowly, repetitively, if necessary. The temptation of that tree was the temptation of an unlimited life. Unlimited by God's limits. And we can can know from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that if Adam and Eve had never eaten of that tree, they would have continued to work with God in the presence of the sun, expanding the garden until the whole earth was ordered And beautiful. And as we serve God faithfully, yes, occasionally, as we serve God faithfully, occasionally long lasting limitations are lifted. Praise God. Slaves might find themselves emancipated, for example, 
conditions improve. But for Adam and Eve, in their eating, their punishment was, ironically, just what they wanted, an unlimited life. Outside of the garden, outside of the limits of the garden, unlimited by God, but now limited by death, corruption, and hardship in everything. So then, it's not that God can't change our circumstances or that we shouldn't change our circumstances, but rather we ourselves need to likewise watch for the temptation of wanting to live the less limited life and thinking that this thing or that thing is superior and necessary to an improved spiritual existence. But if that's what Paul is contradicting, what is he putting in its place? Whenever the Bible takes something away, Jesus gives us something in return. What is given in return? Verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many problems in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. What crisis? What present crisis is he talking about? Time is short to what? Well, Paul has told us this world, in its present form, is passing away. Or as it might possibly be translated, for the form of this world is misleading. It is the eschatological crisis that Paul is referring to, the crisis within us, the crisis out there in the world, the crisis that is the direct result of living between the ascension and the return of the king. We know that this world in its current form is not the final state of things. And again, Paul's teaching depends upon distinctions, fine distinctions and nuanced arguments. Paul is not saying, from now on, husbands, live as though you were single. Imagine the chaos if we took Paul at his word. Rather, through figures of speech and carefully chosen examples, Paul is exhorting us to inherently sit loose to the things of this world. Why? Because we are God's future people now. God's future is one where heaven and earth are united. Jesus has returned and judged the living and the dead. Jesus rules unopposed in everything, and all that is evil or the source of evil has been swept away. God's future people now. We are to live the future heavenly realities now. And if you look at the teachings of Jesus, many of them are examples of how to live the future 
now. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Future realities lived now, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God's future people now. Any decision to live in the light of God's future plan for his people is a good one. And that idea will suddenly make sense of a whole heap of what Paul has to say about marriage and singleness. Thinking fixedly about our earthly future will invest and accumulate in one way. Thinking fixedly about our heavenly future will invest and accumulate in a very different way. And also, actually, in a self-limiting way. With the future firmly in mind and scorning the shame that is heaped upon the downwardly mobile, Jesus self-limited through incarnation and crucifixion. Yes, even death on a cross. Self-limited to its limit in order that God might delimit him change his circumstances, all in his good time. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. Well, that's a good place, I think, I hope, to leave it um, for this week. Um, let's remember that this chapter is primarily about marriage and sexuality, and to that we'll return next week. But Paul has laid down for us some foundational ways of thinking. Avoid the temptation of thinking that you have to be somebody else to start serving God. Beware of the constant desire we all have to live a delimited life. Therefore, we sit loose to the things of this world, often choosing lovingly to self-limit for the sake of others, for we are God's future people now. And the Lord be with you.